Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. lucky enough to catch our show last week. It was a guest lecture by Dr. Francis Hutchins, a cultural anthropologist at Bellarmine University here in Louisville. And last week we heard the first part of his lecture called Black Death to Evil Eye, the Anthropology of Infectious Disease. And this week we can hear the end of his talk. If you would like to hear part one, just go to forwardradio.org, go to that website, and under Programs, select Bench Talk, The Week in Science, and our podcast is in there. Look for the February 25, 2019 broadcast. So for the next 15 minutes, Dr. Hutchins will wrap up his talk about the cultural aspects of disease and also bring us up to date with a brand new approach that the medical community is now using to study disease and to remedy disease. And following his lecture, I want to fill you in with some news. But first, here is Francis Hutchings' talk on the anthropology of infectious disease. He starts off with a review of how belief systems can influence our perspectives. So, there are a number of ways that, that we influence the patterns of disease. That, uh, this is just a categorization of some of the ideas, some of the beliefs behind what make us sick. So these are sort of crude groupings of belief systems around the world. So I've got three categories here. This is really important where I work in the Amazon. And uh, in my first years down there, I came to understand the whole concept of dark shamanism, which involves attacks and counterattacks, the belief that shamans have an energy in their body. It can be used to heal, it can be used to kill, and it can be sent. It can be sent across the air. And people the way that they describe it is almost like in a form of an invisible dart where they can send it flying. And so when a person dies, when a, when a person's seriously ill or when they die, then the first thing that people do is to determine who did it. Not what was the cause of this, but who and why. And then the next step is to go to the shaman and determine what to do. And this can turn serious. This can turn into homicide. They can turn into people being uh, kicked out of a community, isolating people. So personalistic, personalistic disease theory looks at an agent, an active agent, that caused that illness. It could be a supernatural agent, or it could be an actual living human. Naturalistic disease theory includes Western medicine, so this is based on scientific understanding of bacteria, fungi, viruses, and so forth. Emotionalistic disease theory, the idea that strong emotions can make a person sick. I spent quite a bit of time with a midwife in Ecuador, and she's allowed me to come in as she's seeing and diagnosing mainly indigenous patients. And the last time I did this, most of the 
patients that came in, they were usually either pregnant women or women who had recently given birth and then had their infant with them. Uh, and she often diagnosed severe fright. It goes by a couple of different names. Susto is one of those. And as I started to think about it, because they were explaining to her what was going on inside the household, I think this was a euphemism for domestic violence. Because usually it was both the woman, and if she had a child, the child would get the same diagnosis. So you're asking, okay, how did both of them get it? Well, if it's domestic violence, more than likely she had the child with her. They carry their children everywhere on their backs. They're nursing them. So it falls squarely uh, into this category of emotionless disease theory. A lot of belief is that strong emotions can cause the soul to become sort of unanchored or even leave the body altogether. And that's what makes the person sick. You can imagine that with these different ways of understanding what causes your illness, you're going to have different ways of figuring out what to do about it, right? And this is where doc doctors a lot of times find face challenges here uh, when someone has come from another part of the world with this notion of what caused them to get sick, uh, then how are you going to respond to that? Because, and I see this multiple times in South America, where patients will tell a physician, okay, you've treated the symptoms, but we really haven't gotten at the root cause what made me sick. Uh, and that requires a spiritual response from a person qualified as a spiritual leader. Uh, to just briefly get back to bubonic plague, so that was interpreted through a religious perspective. When we talked about worldviews a minute ago, remember one of the five categories of cultural knowledge? Well, the religious perspective is directly connected to a certain worldview. And so the understanding as the plague moved throughout Europe and other parts of the world, a lot of times it was filtered through this perspective of an angry God or some sort of violation of the code between humans and God. And this is just another testimonial that reflects how people reacted. So looking back, and there are a variety of ways of looking back, there are a number of different subfields in anthropology and other disciplines that look back. Recently there have been some graveyards dug up that revealed just how serious the outbreak was. I can't remember, it was some, somewhere in Europe, uh, there was a bioarchaeologist talking about how they found a number of bodies that were missing a limb that they knew had died because of the plague. And their conclusion was that people were dying so quickly that they couldn't be picked up and buried. And so those bodies that were missing a limb had been laying in the home in the street for so long that they had started to decompose to the point where limbs had fallen off before they were able to get them into the grave. So they really understood just how serious it was that people were dying that fast. So these, these are two interesting terms that came up when I was reading the bioarchaeological. Bio so that's a much more scientific side of anthropology, in my opinion. This term, heterogeneous frailty, an individual's risk of death relative to other members of the population. So we know when there's an epidemic, a pandemic, some people fall more quickly than others. When the flu breaks out, when it's flu season, some people get it more quickly than others. That's what this is referring to, but what does it tell us? We can certainly understand that some bodies are stronger than other bodies, but from a collective sense, it plays out differently sometimes to one community versus another, one part of the city versus another. So then we start asking questions about what's going on there. Why are some people more susceptible to this particular outbreak than others? And then we have this other term, selective mortality. Some people die at a higher rate than other people do, and what this does is it, it makes an important turn within anthropology, not necessarily away from culture, but at the same time we're understanding culture, we're starting to ask questions about structure. 
And I'll explain what I mean by that in a few minutes I've got left. So we know that there are health disparities. There are significant differences in life expectancy and quality of health. And these health disparities are often explained by health inequalities. That these health inequalities reflect social inequalities. Things like poverty, things like racism, gender issues. So now we're, when we talk about things like racism, poverty, and gender, we're moving well beyond the cultural level and we're talking about something that's a structure, right? That exists out there, that's sort of a macro experience that exists and that affects people's lives in important ways. When it comes time to trying to understand uh, some of these differences, some people point to the individual lifestyle. That your health reflects your decisions, good or bad. Your health is your responsibility. So anything that's going on with you is simply a matter of you having made good or bad choices. The social structural view says that social inequality is maybe a more effective way of understanding disease patterns and mental health, rather than just always pointing the finger at the individual. You can get global maps. This is the U.S. map for life expectancy. So uh, the red is is uh, the scary end of the spectrum. This is... I think it's less than 70 years, 74, less than 74. You can tell clusters here. Now, why is it clustering in one place and not another? Are people down in this part, which includes us, uh, just more frail, to use that terminology? We just don't quite have the bodies, the stamina, that people in these little scattered purple zones have. No, there's more, more than likely there's something social and cultural that we need to ask about the clustering here. Because as you go and you can hover over each one of these, you're going to find differences in life expectancy of up to 20 years or close to 20 years. There's one place I just read about in New Jersey. One community has a lifespan that's 80-something, and another community has a lifespan that's 60-something. 20 years. I don't know about you, but two decades of life, if given a choice, I would prefer to have those. And it's not just the lifespan. It's also the quality of life. So who knows the difference in lifespan between West Louisville and East Louisville? Yeah, it's 10 years. It's a full decade. So you can drive it in 20 minutes and move from an area where people's lives are sometimes dramatically different in terms of the quality, in terms of when they would expect to die and what they would expect to die from. And you can probably begin to understand why that might be, that difference, that big disparity. Let me just show you real quick another map because we know now that stress plays a very important role uh, in the quality of people's life and in their exposure and how their bodies respond when they are exposed to certain pathogens. So if we look at this, we cut, and this is a, a map from February 9th, so this is current. So this is a week of crime data um, from the police department. Uh, so this is February 9th to February 15th. So... 10 years less than life expectancy over here. What's the level of stress when you live in a community like this, especially if you've got children, as you walk out of your home, as you close your door at night? This is pretty telling uh, when we start to visualize what some of these patterns are. And the, the, the types of crimes that we're talking about are going to have an impact as well. If we're just talking about maybe a vandalism or something like that, versus what could be an assault, it could be a murder, it could be drug-related. And then we ask the question, well, why? Why is that side of the city so different? I don't have time to get into that, uh, but we could go into 
issues of redlining, we could go into issues of white flight, we could go into obviously all kinds of issues of racism, and that would start to tell us a little bit of the story about the biology of poverty. The point that poverty and all the things that go along with it are inscribed in everyone's body who's been exposed to this, and I did this with the students the other day, I said, okay, we've got two people who donated their bodies to science, we've got one over here from a wealthier family and one over here from a, someone who grew up in poverty. And as we take that body apart, as we look at the teeth, as we look at the lungs, as we look at bone structure, and a wide variety of things, maybe even the contents of your stomach, you're going to see sometimes dramatic difference. And so things like this, social factors, cultural factors, are inscribed in the body in some pretty interesting ways. So what can anthropologists do? Uh, I think from both the cultural perspective and the structural perspective, Anthropologists have a good bit to offer. The people that are especially interested in these last issues I talked about, health inequalities, structural issues, or what we call critical medical anthropologists. This has long been a part of cultural anthropology, this interpretive role, trying to understand what beliefs are in a particular situation. This crosses over into, and certainly into biology. Anthropologists have worked with teams of epidemiologists and others when there have been disease outbreaks, so understanding these relationships between humans and animals within certain ecosystems. Ebola, for example, uh, there was a great deal of investigative work that went uh, in determining what they think now happened is encounters with fruit bats uh, that ultimately were responsible for spreading. Facilitating relationships between patients and healers, a lot of uh, applied medical anthropologists work in large hospital systems, working at CDC, working in the World Health Organization. And then just generally adding context to the variety of meanings that come out of episodes uh, when our lives are abnormal due to one of these illnesses that we've been talking about. So we could uh, unimmunize children. We could put a little bubble out there on the northwest coast of the United States right now, right? Uh, based on what's going on in Washington State. Uh, but this just gives you an idea of, and, and this isn't, I, I don't think it's safe to say, that these large numbers India, parts of Africa, are because people are simply obstinate, ignorant, they refuse to get vaccinated. There are all kinds of different cultural reasons. One uh, is fundamentally access to vaccines. Do they have the resources to get the vaccines? I'll just stop at this one. Uh, there are a couple of slides that talk about health governance on a global scale. In, in other words, what institutions, what organizations step in when there is an outbreak? So with Ebola, we saw for the first time where individual countries lost a lot of their sovereign power to control these things. In other words, some countries were reluctant to publicly say, we've got it now, we're doing this about it, and the World Health Organization, which had usually stood back and let the individual countries, their ministries of health, for example, take over, the World Health Organization said, this is serious enough to where we're going to start releasing information. Uh, and so it was problematic and still is for a lot of people. That's part of what we call uh, global health governance. Who are the institutions that are responsible for getting the information out? How culturally sensitive are they when they do this? Centers for Disease Control and World Health Organization both uh, have interesting websites to navigate that usually have some sort of corner where their crisis outbreaks are listed. Uh, so you can go at any one moment to CDC or World Health Organization to see what's happening. There are some several different bird flus outbreaks that are going on now, tuberculosis, measles. Uh, this One Health Ecology is an effort, and this is in the foundation of the field school that I direct every summer in Ecuador, where we get, we get faculty from veterinary medicine, from human medicine, from pharmacy, 
and we bring students from those programs and we go into the field and ask some of these questions. We visit communities. It's not a clinical program. It's more of, okay, these guys are going to be professionals. They're the ones that we want to have this larger perspective, this more holistic understanding of relationships between human and animals because uh, too often it's been done in silos uh, where the doctors don't talk to the veterinarians and so on and so forth, don't talk to the pharmacists. We need an approach that weaves these understandings together, I think, to really address some of these scary outbreaks. That was Dr. Frank Hutchins finishing his talk on the anthropology of infectious disease. If you want to hear the first part of his talk, check out our podcast page on the forwardradio.org website, or just find the link on our Facebook page. Look for the February 25, 2019 broadcast. It's interesting that Dr. Hudgens ends his lecture pointing to the One Health approach being taken by the international medical community these days. We did a report here on Bench Talk about the One Health model back in October 29, 2018. This was our special Halloween edition, and I was talking about how researchers figured out the cause of death of the Saiga antelope, who had a mass die-out back in 2015 in Kazakhstan. They used the One Health approach in resolving this question. Anyway, we want to thank Dr. Hutchins for this fascinating lecture. On with the show. This week, we're introducing a new feature on the show. It's called Science on the Fly, and it's meant to be a summary of interesting headlines and breakthroughs from the world of science. There's just so many new and exciting things going on, it's too hard to keep up with it all in a half-hour show. So here are some of the more interesting science stories that have been in the news recently. Well, the final data is in about the average surface temperatures on Earth in 2018, and guess what? The planet is continuing its warming trend. Now, we had to wait a little extra long for this report from NASA because of the government shutdown, but NASA says that 2018 was the fourth warmest year on record. That's covering the last 140 years. We've been on this trend of rising surface temperatures since 1904. Now, if you look at the graph of average surface temperatures for the planet over the last 138 years, you will see that temperatures dropped slightly between 1880 and 1904, then rose pretty rapidly between 1904 and 1946, and then global surface temperatures didn't really trend up or down from the time of the end of World War II until 1971. But then from 1971 until now, the average global temperature has been trending upwards. That's over the past 47 years. 
it's the longest running trend line you see for this period, this 138 year period. Now the five warmest years on records have been during the past five years and 18 of the 19 warmest years have occurred since 2001. The oddball year was 1998 which experienced particularly high temperatures. I remember for 10 years following that hot year of 1998 conservatives and climate change deniers would insist that the earth was actually cooling because the years following 1998 did indeed seem a little bit cooler compared to that high year. But make no mistake about it, since 2008 the planet has really plugged into high gear again to where we are now a full 1 degree centigrade warmer than in the 1970s. That's 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a big jump. In addition to 2018 being the fourth warmest year on record, it was also the fourth costliest here in the United States. Now 2017 was the most costliest, reaching $306 billion of damage due to weather disasters. So compared to that, 2018 costs only $91 billion. It seems sort of small, but it's still a huge amount of money and it's still the fourth costliest year on record. For the first time, wildfires in the U.S. in 2018 caused more damage than hurricanes did. Now, the ultimate cause of our warmer planet is the large amount of CO2 gas that we're putting into the atmosphere. And we've been putting this stuff into the air since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, really. If you want a review of the science behind the link between CO2, carbon dioxide, and global temperatures, check out our radio show from November 26, 2018. And in that same episode, November 26, 2018, there's also a story about the wildfires we've experienced last year. This episode talks about why these fires occur where they occur and why do they cause so much damage. Well, did you see the lunar eclipse that we experienced back in January 20th, 2019? I really loved watching that lunar eclipse, but I think a lot of people were discouraged by the really cold temperatures at night. Plus, the moon was quite high in the sky, so you really had to stretch your neck to see it. But what you might not know about that lunar eclipse, even though by itself it was really a wonderful and rare experience, is that something else happened that night that was just as spectacular. A meteoroid hit the moon during the eclipse and people actually saw the flash of light from it. Now you've probably seen a falling star at night here on Earth, but this wasn't really a falling star because the moon's atmosphere is practically non-existent. And when, it's when the rock goes through the Earth's atmosphere that causes that streak of light. But that's not what was seen during this lunar eclipse. Here it's a situation of the rock hitting the ground generating a big flash of light upon impact. Now millions of people watch the eclipse either by looking up directly or watching live casts on the internet and it didn't take long for people to start reporting seeing this single flash of light during the eclipse. Astronomers have confirmed the sighting so it is a real thing. Now the moon obviously gets hit by a lot of space rocks since there are so many craters on the moon but it's usually too bright to see the flashes of light. So in the past they're usually observed when the moon is not fully illuminated like when it's a quarter moon or something like that. 
but this is the first time that anyone has seen these impacts during a lunar eclipse. We'll try to post some pictures or links to these images on our Facebook page. Just check out Bench Talk the Week in Science on Facebook and you can see some images of, of this impact. Astronomers estimate that the rock was about the size of a football and weighed about four pounds. That's about the weight of a half a gallon of milk. It's estimated to have left a crater that's about 20 to 30 feet across. And so it was a pretty substantial strike. And by the way, Professor Scott Miller just spoke about what happens when large space rocks hit planets like the Earth. He talked about that on the February 11, 2019 episode. So check that out on our SoundCloud page. You can also link to that from our Bench Talk Facebook page. So surely these are crazy times we're living in these days, but just imagine seeing a rock hit the moon during a lunar eclipse. What's the probability of being able to see that? Incredible! You've heard about the hearing problems experienced by U.S. and Canadian diplomats to Cuba, haven't you? The disease has a name now. It's called the Havana Syndrome, and it was first reported in 2017. Forty people report having the Havana Syndrome now. They complain of first hearing high-pitched sounds or feeling pressure in their ears, and then later they develop hearing loss, sleep disturbance, headaches, memory loss, nosebleeds, and nausea. Now the University of Pennsylvania is studying this situation, but they really haven't resolved the cause yet. They have examined the brains of the diplomats and haven't reported any brain abnormalities. People speculate that perhaps the Cuban government was using some sort of sonic weapon or microwave generator on these diplomats. But there's also speculation that it's due to toxic chemicals, noisy insects, crickets, which is kind of hard to believe, or even mass hysteria. In 2018, there was a report of U.S. diplomats in China experiencing these same symptoms. So the Havana syndrome showing up in China, too, that's very disturbing. In early February of 2019, a group of diplomats from Canada who've contracted the disease while living in Cuba, they've launched a lawsuit against the government of Canada. The suit charges that Canada didn't do enough to protect the diplomats or respond correctly. Perhaps this lawsuit's going to serve as a catalyst for finding some answers to this mysterious situation. Stay tuned to this show and we'll keep you apprised of any changes on this story. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www4 
forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.